Good morning. Good morning. My name is Patrick Reeves, and this is my wonderful wife, Nancy, and we are covenant partners here at First Presbyterian Church. And today, we will continue our study of 1 Corinthians as we look at the common unity that Paul encourages the Corinthian Christians to work towards as they follow Christ together, particularly in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. We invite you to follow along in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 22, and verses 27 through 34 in your own Bibles, or look up on the screens behind me as we read the passage aloud. Hear the word of the Lord. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe in part. I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be, con so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come." All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Amen. Thank you, Nancy and Patrick. Charlotte's pretty fun to see your parents up here, isn't it? It's so cool. Good morning. How's everybody today? Good. That band is pretty awesome, right? I'm telling you. Yes. Um, it was, it's so fun to see them like really worshiping, like doing the things that God has gifted them to do in such a cool way. And so we're so grateful for them. Um, for those um, who don't know me, I'm Becky. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Grateful to be here with you today. I want to see a raise of hands who saw the eclipse yesterday. Most everybody probably got outside. We all came out of our homes or our workplaces or wherever. We put on the special glasses and we saw the beautiful eclipse. And the cool thing about the eclipse is that it's really an act of God, right? I'm going to show you a picture. This is Sam Simpson Scott. It was one of our pastors. His son took this picture with a, for those nerds on cameras, Canon 5D Mark IV with a 200 millimeter lens with a polarizer. <laughs> So he didn't burn his retinas or his camera. But I thought this was a pretty good, like for a non-astronomer, you know, amateur photographer, like pretty good picture, right? But it's cool when we see something like this because truly it could not be done by man. God has an order to the universe that is so perfect, right? And it's amazing that this annular, Eclipse, like Cora, my daughter at six years old, is like, this, this is so cool. I get to see this in my lifetime. Like the joy of watching a moon while the earth rotates come before the sun and cover it 
Ring of Fire, Johnny Cash, Total Eclipse of the Heart, right? Like the songs that were running through our heads yesterday, like this was a cool event and it could not have happened without a creator. Like if you don't believe in God, right here, right? God has an order of creation in which he places things in a way that works so that we don't burn up and die on earth, so that we can live in this world as his people. Unfortunately, we as humans in our sinful nature disorder what God has ordered rightly. And we mess things up and we abuse things and things in our world start to fall apart when we do things that aren't honoring to God and in our own hearts and our lives that happens. But God has a created order not only in our world, our universe, our galaxies, I mean, it goes beyond and beyond and it's amazing to think about God's expansive creation, but he also has an order for our worship and our time together as followers of Christ. When we come together, God has set certain things aside for us to do that brings glory to him. And a few of those things are what we call sacraments. And today, our, our passage from 1 Corinthians that the Reeves read for us, we continue to plug through some of these things that the Corinthian Christians have just messed right on up, right? Like, Paul today is a little spicy, I have to admit. He's very direct. In fact, um, Nancy and I were talking about it ahead of time. He kind of like says, what? Like, how do you say that? Is, is that how he meant it? it? Was it very forceful? We'll talk about it in a second. But Paul is really speaking directly to the Corinthians about ways that they have disordered the, the worship of God through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So we're going to dive right into the passage, but buckle up because you may be challenged a little bit. There is a bold rebuke in this teaching. It is very clear. It comes directly from Paul, but it is from God that we are, that God is challenging us to reorder the way that he has intended for us to live. So I invite you, as we, before we dive in, keep your Bibles open. Um, let, us, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Paul begins right away, and he says directly in, in verse 17, he says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. So like, mm -mm, not doing it right. I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Okay, so the Corinthians gather, and instead of like having a positive outcome, things are bad. Like it doesn't turn out good. In fact, when they get together, things are worse. Paul's not happy when it comes to the issue of the Lord's Supper and how the Corinthians are, are performing and celebrating the Lord's Supper. They, um, their time together is negative. It's not worshipful. It's not positive, And he's correcting them. So in order to understand why they need correction, we need to understand how the Corinthians took the Lord's Supper. It's different than the way we do it here in our church. We come to a church house, to a, a sanctuary, or to a worship center. We come together, and we have a worship service with singing and preaching and a table set, and we come forward at the end of our worship to enjoy the feast that God has provided for us, to feast on his grace 
through Jesus Christ as we remember and we proclaim it's a spiritual meal. And the Corinthians, they didn't have church houses like this. They had just their homes. So they would come together in what was called a love feast or an agape, right? They would all, it's like a potluck. Everyone would bring a, a dish and they would come together, usually in the most, in the richest person's home because it had the most space. And the rich people would often get there first because it's their home. They'd invite their friends and they'd come. But everybody who followed Christ was invited. All of the congregation came to the same house. And they would eat and feast together. They would enjoy a meal. And then at the end of that time together, they would do the Lord's Supper, the peace where Jesus sat with his disciples and broke the bread and poured the cup as they remembered what Christ did for them. So it's different than the way that we take the Lord's Supper here. But unfortunately, in their love feast, there wasn't a lot of love going on. There was some division happening, and we're going to read about what Paul says here. Uh, Verses 18 and 19, Paul says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So they come together as a church. He sees that there are divisions, and these aren't just the typical divisions of like, ooh, some, some haven't yet believed in Jesus yet, and others do. The genuine worshipers, the ones that have been followers of Christ versus the people that are just hearing about Jesus and haven't come to say yes to Jesus yet. Or the general, you know, male and female sort of differentiations, or Jew and Gentile. Like, he's not talking about those divisions. He's talking about a deeper division, one that creates shame and pain for people. So what kind of divisions? He says in verses 20 and 21, when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. In these gatherings of the congregation, there is division between those who are rich and have plenty to eat and those who are poor and are left with nothing. See, the rich, rich people got there first and they're sitting in the dining room, they're sitting together. And the slaves and the poor people, maybe they were working a little bit longer, maybe they couldn't get there in time, and so they're a little bit later and they're kind of sitting on the outskirts in other rooms farther away from the center of the meal. And by the time the plates get around to them, there's no more left because the rich have eaten it all, full to the brim, totally gluttonous, enjoying their feast. And the poor people are left out, excluded and hungry with nothing left for them to eat. Paul is not happy about this. The poor people had nothing to contribute and yet the, the rich did not wait for them to eat. And on top of that, some are getting drunk at the meal. They're really enjoying themselves. It's a party. And so they come to the part of the Lord's Supper when they're to remember Christ's sacrifice. And some aren't like, some are hungry and some are drunk. What are we doing here? This is not a good place. It's like the worst possible middle school lunchroom, right? Like anybody in here in middle school, middle school's the worst, first of all. But second of all, when you go into the middle school lunchroom and you see like the popular kids and they all have like their Uncrustables and the Oreos. I didn't get Uncrustables and Oreos as a kid. Um, and then you have the kids with like the school lunch that's like, mm. It wasn't very good when I was growing up. It's better now. But like, uh, or they just didn't have anything. Maybe you forgot your lunch and you're sitting there and you're like, first of all, I don't have anyone to sit with. Second of all, I don't have anything to eat. And maybe you go and hide in the bathroom because you just want to wait for the lunch to be over. 
right? All but the drunkenness part, that probably doesn't happen in middle school or middle schools, let's hope. But it reminds me of that feeling that you get, you know, are you getting the feeling of like walking in and not having a place to sit and not having anything to eat and feeling left out and feeling like, ugh, I don't wanna be here. This is not unifying, I don't feel part of the group. That's what was happening. Some were getting full and eating the richness of food and others were left hungry and some were just partying and they're just happy to be there. Woohoo! this is fun. The Lord's Supper was meant to unite people together, to bring the church together in Jesus Christ's name based on his sacrifice, his death and resurrection. And instead, the the Corinthians were behaving poorly. They were mistreating this Lord's Supper. There was division and selfishness and shame for those who had nothing. Paul has already warned the Corinthians in his letter about division. In chapter one, we read about that. And here he goes again to say, be careful. I do not commend what you are doing. He wants to be very clear that he is, he is not happy. His anger is showing. In verse 22, Paul says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, no, I will not. This struck a chord with Paul. This disordered behavior goes against what Jesus is calling the body of Christ to do. Those who are following Jesus should be united in their faith, a time of worship to come together and celebrate rather than leave feeling humiliated and left out. What Jesus has intended for a moment of worship, of a reminder of his goodness, of a spiritual moment, the poor are being shamed, the rich are being exclusive and selfish. Things are not as they should be. So Paul goes on in verses 23 to 26, and he tells them exactly how it should be. And these are words that are gonna be familiar to you as you hear him. Nancy and Patrick didn't read them because you know them, and I'm gonna read them right now. These are the words that Paul brings back to the point of what we do here in the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. You've heard this, right? When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So hold there. He reminds them of these words. These words are the words that Jesus said to his disciples at the Last Supper. And these actually, these ones that Paul writes right here are the first time they've been written down because Paul's letters actually become before the writing of the gospels. So it's like a little interesting nugget to take home with you. But this, these words are the first time they've been, Paul was not at that table, but he had been passed down this truth of what happened at the Last Supper with Jesus before he was killed. And so through the power of the Spirit writing through him, he wrote these words to remind the Corinthians, like this is what Jesus is meaning in the table. This is what it's all about. This is what you need to remember And so he goes on and he says, um, 26, if you don't mind. Thank you, Bob. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
So when Jesus sat at table with his disciples the night that he was betrayed, they were having the Passover feast, remembering the goodness of God to the people of Israel when they were freed from Egypt. Remember that in Exodus, right? So they were sitting celebrating God's promise to redeem his people, to bring them out of slavery. And he promises a new covenant that Jesus has come to save everyone, not just the Hebrew people, but all of those who believe. And not only do they eat this bread and drink this cup when they believe in Jesus to remember that he died and rose again, but they also do it to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again because the promise is that Jesus will return. And that is a promise that we can have hope in now. So Paul's like, don't do what you're doing. Guys, remember this truth. This is good news. This is why we come to this table together, to be reminded. Jesus was telling of this new promise, a promise of salvation for all who believe in Jesus Christ, that he died, that he rose again from the dead, and that he promised to return for the final consummation of God's kingdom. So when they come together, as they remember Jesus, they're to take the bread, They're to take the cup. They're not supposed to guzzle it down. They're not supposed to fill up on the bread just because they're hungry. They're supposed to come in the spiritual moment with an awe, a holy awe of what God has done for them, letting his love and grace pour upon them, uniting them together as a body, proclaiming that Jesus will come again. So Paul is writing these words to reorder what has been disordered, After his rebuke of their behavior, he doesn't just leave them there, like you're doing it wrong, figure it out. He shows them how to do it. He reminds them of the truth. It's not to stuff ourselves. It's not to get drunk. It's not to divide and exclude between the rich and the poor. It's to give thanks to God for the sacrificial gift of Jesus Christ. Paul reminds them of this right meaning in these in meaning of the, the supper in these, in these words. And then he goes on in verses 27 and 28. He encourages them to rethink how they're doing things and to examine their hearts. He writes, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So they're supposed to eat of the bread and the cup, not in an unworthy manner. But I don't, this is such a misinterpreted passage right here, this scripture. People think, well, I'm never worthy, then I can never come to the table. I'm always sinful. And even though I confess my sins, I still feel like I'm not perfect. You're not right? You will never be worthy. That's the gift of grace. So the the point of this passage is not to get yourself all cleaned up so that you can come and eat. The point of this passage is, is to say that you yourself cannot be worthy. You cannot earn the gift of grace. You come because you're invited and loved by God. So what Paul is saying here is not that you're coming without sin. It's that you're recognizing your, what, where your heart is before you come, You will not be fully free of sin this side of heaven until Christ comes to return and redeems the world and conquers sin. We are carrying that burden of brokenness, but through Jesus, we are forgiven and invited, not because of what we can do to earn it. So don't look at this passage and think, I'm not worthy, I can never come. 
to the table. The passage means look at your body, look at, the, look at the congregation, look at why you do the sacraments. Is it for your own selfishness so you'll feel better about yourself? Or is it to bring God glory? Is it to be nourished by the spiritual presence of Jesus at the table so that you might go out to proclaim that he is coming again? So we examine ourselves not eating the Lord's Supper in a way that leads to divisions, but making room for all who believe to come. One body of Christ, together and unified, no matter what the socioeconomic statuses are of the congregation that gathers together, no matter what people have to bring to the table, you come with nothing because you cannot earn what God has provided. Verse 28, again, he says, he doesn't say it again, but let a person examine himself, taking a look at themselves. One of the best things that I get to do as a pastor here at First Press is teach the first communion class to our kids every fall. Anybody that's aged first grade up through, it can be their parents come with them, it can be a seventh grader that moved to town and never got to take it. People come, and we did it a few weeks ago in preparation for World Communion Sunday, which was on October 2nd or first, or whatever day it was, you know. And so one of the things that we talk about is how I invite all the first graders to take out their mirror. I'm like a little handheld mirror, like a pocket mirror, you know? We all carry them, right? And we pull it out, and we pretend that we're looking in the mirror at ourselves before we come to the table. We look at where we've fallen short, what, what things we've done, like lied to our mom or hit our sister or did, did the things that cheated on a test, whatever that makes us feel like a stomach ache inside, those sinful things that are keeping us from God. And sometimes we have to take a minute and look in the mirror to really see where we've messed up. We're examining ourselves. We're looking at our sinfulness, not because we think we can become perfect, but because we offer those as confessions to God to forgive us. So we take out our mirror, and then we say that we listen to the truth of Scripture. No matter what service you go to, no matter what preacher is preaching that day, what pastor on our staff, every single one of us, you'll hear us say those same words from Scripture that we just read that Paul wrote, that Jesus said at the Last Supper. The words of institution they're called, the administration of the sacrament is going to look and sound the same in every service that we have here because that's the truth of scripture. We're not making up words to make us feel good. We're not making up words to make it just about first prez. Those are the words that Jesus said to his disciples as, they took, as he took his bread and he broke it, as he poured the cup. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. So we take out our mirror, we examine ourselves, we ask for forgiveness, and then we listen to the story just like Paul does to them, reminding them of why we come. It's not to get full, it's not to feel good, it's not to get drunk, it's to come to celebrate what God has done for us. And then we're invited. We come forward and we feast, not individually, not in our own corners by ourselves, but as one body. We take the elements together because as one community, we are called together to celebrate what the Lord has done. Now, that doesn't mean we don't take communion to people that can't get to church, but often our deacons go in twos or threes to serve communion as, as ambassadors from the church, as the body of Christ coming in to serve them in their homes because they can't come here. We are one body to take it together, not leaving anyone out because they're too young or they're too old 
All we have to do is believe as we come together. This is covenant community. Paul is teaching the the Corinthians to do that here. They've lost sight of the gift of grace through the Lord's Supper. Not to be full, not to have a party, but they're examining their motives, examining their hearts, reminded of the truth of the gospel. Paul continues in 29. He says here, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why so many of you are weak and ill and some have died. And if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Paul is serious. There are some consequences for abusing the worship of the, and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper here. The discipline that comes from God that, that Paul is showing them helps to reorder our lives, not so that we might be condemned, but so that we might be in line with God's sovereign will and his grace. This is not to create fear of, oh no, if I do it wrong, I'm gonna be sick and die. That's not the intention of this, but it's to remind them that there is a bigger picture than their own selfish desires. Slide, uh, verses 33 to 34. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Is that not the best image? Right? Like, nothing better than at the middle school lunchroom, somebody's waited for you and saved a seat for you. Right? Like, they didn't gobble up all their food and then go, oh, sorry, we didn't know you were coming and we don't have anything left. When somebody waits for you, slows down long enough to realize that, hey, so-and-so's not here. Hey, so-and-so, I want that family member to be a part of this grace. I want that stranger on the street to know the love of God. Like, I'm going to save a place and I'm going to, let's wait for them to come so that they can enjoy the feast with us, so that they can come to know who Jesus Christ is as their Savior. Come together. When you want to eat, eat at home. But when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Do this in community. Do this together as the body of Christ, united on what Christ has done for you. So what does this all mean for us, right? We, we already established that we take communion very differently than the Corinthian Christians did. So we have less probably temptation to um, get too full or to eat like, are you going to come and eat all the wafers? I mean, you probably won't be full. They're kind of styrofoamy, but that's because they're gluten-free. So that's really good. But seriously, like that's probably not a temptation. Like you're not going to take the cup and like chug the juice, it's juice, and, you know, and get, like, drunk on that, probably. So our temptations might be different, but what Paul says here is real. Like, it still applies to us, because there is a lot that's disordered about the way that we live. There's a lot that's disordered about the church. Unfortunately, church has caused pain to a lot of people in the world by human sin and brokenness, not what God intended, Church has often led to division. People feel left out of the church. People feel sort of marginalized by the church. But that is not what God is calling us to. Paul is not instructing the Corinthians to go about their merry way and be divided. Way to go. No. He's saying, no, reorder, examine, look at your heart. This is what God intended. Now go and do it so that God might be honored. Wait for those who aren't there yet. How does this instruction from Paul apply to our lives? Where might we not be honoring God 
in celebrating his grace towards us? Where might we be coming in with selfish motives or ambitions, trying to get what's ours first and then whatever's left to give to those who are outside these walls? It's a temptation in church, right? Like huddled together, we're the, we're the saved people. But the point of what we're doing here in church is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the world, to tell other people about Jesus, what he did, how he died, how we're saved, and to promise or to tell them the promise that Jesus is going to return. Where have we been divided when God meant us to be united by Christ? Where have different socioeconomic status lines been drawn or age lines been drawn or ethnic lines been drawn? Where has disunity reigned when we are meant to be united by Christ? What that means is you might have a six-year-old squirming next to you and it's a little annoying to sit with them. Maybe it's just me. And to try to listen to Jesus or to, to the, listen to the sermon and to really get what we want to get out of it. But you know what? That's a pretty selfish motive, right? Let's pass down our faith to the six-year-old sitting right next to us so that they might know who Jesus is so that they can then preach the word of God when they grow up. What is it like to sit, somebody, sit next to somebody that doesn't look or smell or think or vote like you? Right? It's easy to say, well, let me get mine first. I'm a member here. I'm a covenant partner, so I need to go and get my grace first. That is not what God intends for us. And Paul is challenging us. Like, you might have read this and been like, oh, we don't have trouble with that. Whoa, but then it kind of starts to hit your heart and you go, ow, conviction, right? To not come for our selfish desires to be fulfilled, but rather acknowledging God's covenant with us, his people, as a community of faith looking different, talking different, doing different things, united by Jesus Christ. My favorite verse, and I'll bring it up again, Galatians 3.28. Paul says here, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are one together as those who follow Christ. Let us leave room and wait for others to join us. When we come to the table at field, Mitchell and I were talking this morning, it would be so great if we were like, okay, and now come, break the bread and pour the juice. It would feel really good to like practice what we've just learned about. But let these words sink in over the next few weeks and then come the first Sunday of November to celebrate the Lord's Supper here. And remember, maybe invite somebody. Invite somebody to this church and, and bring them along with you to experience this grace. Teach them about who Jesus is. May their hearts be turned um, by the Holy Spirit to come and to receive his grace and proclaim that Jesus is alive and that he is coming again. The world is disordered and our brokenness continues to abuse and mess things up. That's why Christ died, so that we might have forgiveness for the disordered nature of our sin. God is a God of order, just like the eclipse everything in its right order that God intended, when we live for him, we're forgiven and we're freed. So we ask Jesus to forgive us so that we might stand in holy awe of what Christ has done for us and so that we can share that joy and awe with others. Let us pray. 
God, our Father, we thank you for your love for us through Jesus Christ, your Son. That while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, you sent your Son to die for us so that we might be forgiven and, be, and have everlasting life. God, I do pray that you would convict our hearts to where we might not be waiting for those on the outskirts to join us, where we might not have the patience and the grace to be united by you. Help us to recognize our selfishness when we come to the table, ready to receive your love and grace, but maybe excluding those around us. Lord, and if that's not the case, where else might we be falling astray? Forgive us, Lord, make us new. Teach us how to proclaim your good news to the world. Give us courage, give us hope, give us strength to walk each day in the newness of you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray, amen.